Welcome to the EV Ready Podcast, featuring industry leaders and their perspectives on electrification, hosted by EV Ready Energy. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining the EV Ready Podcast. And I am honored today to have uh, the VP of Investor Relations at Avangrid, Charlotte Ansel, on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining. Chris, thanks for having me. And, you know, Charlotte, obviously, uh, our relationship isn't new. We we work with each other briefly, but ever since that, and I, I know I, I always say this to you, but since we met in that meeting in New Hampshire when you worked for Eversource back in the day, I always was impressed with how you understood utilities, how they worked, your approach towards energy, clean energy, and uh, couldn't be more grateful that, that you are here to talk about it today. Well, right back at you. Yeah, I'm excited to talk. Awesome. Awesome. And so I think the best thing, if you could give everybody a background as to who you are and, and what you do, that would be like an awesome start to understand just the history that you've had in the utility space. Absolutely. So uh, at Charlotte Ansel, I have been in the clean energy space for about 12 years now. I started out as a lawyer in a law firm in Vermont. Um, actually doing litigation, so defending supermarkets and slip and falls where there were, you did a jury trial over like a $30,000 claim because somebody had claimed that they had hurt their neck. And right away, I felt like it was just completely sucking my soul and not, you know, we all have, I've had lots of phases of like, this is not what it was supposed to be like. And that was, that was one of those phases. Sounds like accounting for me. Yeah, exactly. Like you just know I have a place, but it is not here. And so then at the time I was in Burlington, Vermont, and there was a lot of controversy around the relicensing and continued operation of the Vermont Yankee nuclear plant that was one of the fleet of nuclear plants in the Northeast that was owned by Entergy. And Entergy had actually gotten uh, the federal approval to move forward, but there was uh, the state had the ability to weigh in on the permitting. And so I actually worked as like law associate number 10 on that proceeding. And I was very interested in it. It was my first legal activity in a state commission. So, you know, as utilities and generators, we are in many cases regulated by state commission, both on cost and safety. And so that was my first experience with it. And I was I was really, really interested in it. That was right at the time where natural gas was like going to be the savior of everything. And so you would go to these conferences and they'd talk about shale and how that, you know, we have limitless supplies of natural gas and it's going to push this country forward. And, you know, that was really only about a decade ago. And you heard some stuff about solar and onshore wind and electric vehicles, but not a ton. And then I specialized as a lawyer in utility work and I started doing legal work for the utility in Vermont Green Mountain Power. And I hit it off with um, their CEO, who is like a real visionary in the solar electric vehicle and later battery space. Now that that batteries had not yet really come onto the screen yet. I've always admired their approach. Yeah, really interesting approach. And that was actually the utility, one of the utilities that's helped start a construct that's now commonly referred to as net metering. So they provided like- Did a they? Six, yeah, they provided like- They were one of the first ones. I didn't know that. Even before there was a state legislative support for it, they provided a tariff where if you are a customer and you put solar panels on your roof, you would be paid effectively like six cents above 
the retail rate for their output. So that was the beginning of it. And, you know, I think so many of these things in clean energy, that idea ended up needing to have some nuance and more detail to it. But it, to start, you know, we can't get like too obsessed with trying to make something perfect right out of the gate. That was a really bold and important step forward in the, in, in the beginning. And so then I started doing legal work just for Green Mountain Power. And then I actually got the opportunity to go in-house and be the general counsel and later the vice president of Power Supply which I really enjoyed. I worked there for four years. I was at Eversource then. I got recruited to go to Eversource to to lead their clean energy regulatory function, which was an interesting experience. And then I had been in some meetings with some folks from ChargePoint, including yourself, and they were looking for some new energy to focus on the utility part of their business and partnerships. So I got to be at ChargePoint, which I loved. It was one of my most fit favorite jobs that I've ever had and focus on utility partnerships and utility policy and work. And then um, right as COVID, right in the middle of COVID, I was concerned. I was going back and forth from Silicon Valley, back and forth to the East Coast. And I was concerned about how that would be sustainable in a COVID and post-COVID world. And I kind of was thinking, what am I going to do? And the folks at Avangrid came to me and asked me to run the regulatory function for our eight utilities. We have a utilities part of our business and a renewables part of our business. The regulatory function actually sets all of the rates for those eight utilities in the Northeast. And so I did that, have done that for the last three years. That's actually been my most favorite job that I've ever had because of the people and the energy and the issues. And then just very recently at the start of this month, I got asked to be the head of investor relations for all of Auburn Grid, so the renewable side and the utility side. So I'm now lead the team that interfaces with all of our investors, sell and buy side analysts and credit rating agencies, which is also just a really, really interesting. I feel super grateful that I, I get to do the role. Well, congrats. And what a responsibility to take on. It's so exciting. Cheryl, I don't know if I ever told you the story, but you know, obviously ChargePoint is based on like the West Coast. Yes. But it has such a strong contingency in Boston. And all the folks that were leaders at, at ChargePoint, they all knew you from Eversource. And I guess I forgot that you were at GMP, but uh, now I'm remembering. I think I, I met you when we were at Eversource, but I just remember like the, the local excitement in Boston when you were joining ChargePoint was uh, was real. It doesn't always happen when somebody's joining. And uh, we were grateful to work with you. That was that was for sure. I remember when we were when we were at ChargePoint, you answered a very basic question so well. And I wanted to be the first question to to ask you in the podcast for most people, you know, that I think the two big things that are different between electric cars versus gas cars is that they're they're tied to a network and uh, they affect the grid. Yeah. That those are like, you know, kind of the two big things. And I don't think the world generally appreciates how affected the grid is. And and some you know, some people have really strong opinions in one way or, or in the other way. So the question I want to ask you is what is a utility? How does it make money? And and what are utilities generally good at? Oh, great questions. So let me start. I'll explain and I'll focus my answers in on electric utilities. There are also natural gas utilities and most, but not all of the principles that I'm going to describe also apply to them. So in the United States, we have 
evolved and have had effectively the last hundred years exclusive franchises on the distribution and transmission components of the electric grid. So distribution being the poles and wires that you see in front of your house that in many cases you have a line going right into your house that delivers electricity through a feed and powers your house. Transmission being the really big three arm, you know, as big as 345 kV in some cases in some parts of the country, larger electric infrastructure that moves very big amounts of power that can ultimately then be transported into the distribution side. So in each of our states in the United States, one utility gets what we describe as as a franchise to provide electric service on the distribution and transmission side. And as customers, we don't have the ability to choose, yeah, I don't want to work with that utility. I want to work with this one. So we have what is described as in each of our state, in each state in the United States as the regulatory compact, which means the electric utility is a monopoly. Its customers cannot choose to do business with it or not to do business with it. And it has all kinds of theoretical incentives to not do well by its customers. So therefore our costs, so all of the costs that we deliver to our customers and the quality and safety of our service are regulated very intensely by our state commissions. And then on the transmission side, just think in most cases regulated by FERC, in some cases FERC and also the state. So that's how utility regulation works. So so that's really what utilities do. And in some cases, but nowhere in the Northeast, um, but in some cases like in the South and in parts of the middle of the country, utilities are also able to own generation. So like where I started out in Vermont is the one exception in the Northeast. Green Mountain Power can actually own solar, onshore wind, peaking facilities. That is usually not the case. That's why like in the Northeast, you get your Eversource bill and it's a poles and wire bill. And then you get a separate charge for your supply because that is the concept known as deregulation. And that came out in the 80s. It was supposed to this idea that if you introduce competition into the markets with respect to generation that you would drive down costs. That ended up, in my opinion, being, we could do another podcast on being a flawed premise. I think the data will show that's a flawed premise, but that's a conversation for another day. So to answer your question directly about how do utilities make money, it flows from that. So we are allowed in our rates to recover all of our expenses and meaning our operating expenses. So think in your business, like what we describe as O&M. And then we are allowed to also capitalize all of our, you know, our capital assets. So our poles, our wires, our trucks, we depreciate them out over their useful life, which I feel like in the, the utility useful life is like, for, it's like an eternity, like 40 years. And then we earn a return on the equity component of those capital investments. And so that is how we make our money. So I always, I love that question because it sounds so complicated how you do utilities make money. We make money and we generate net income on our business when we build capital assets that are accepted as being, you know, there's these terms used and useful and prudent. Basically, they are approved by our regulators and we recover them in our rates over a period of years. And like most businesses, we run our business about half debt half equity. So our debt costs are just a straight pass through in our rates. So just about virtually on the utility side of the business, our sole driver of earnings is that return that we get on our capital investments. So utilities certainly have a natural incentive to make very strong and important and customer serving capital investments. So to invest in the distribution and transmission grid. 
Awesome. Okay. Yeah. And one reason I wanted you to, to talk about it is there are so many times when talking to customers about the different rate tariffs that exist across the country, they, they all look so different. You know, sometimes you go to one side of the river versus the other, other side of the river. And, and sometimes there's a there's almost like a reflex to think, why is the utility being allowed to charge this demand charge? Right. And, and I think it's helpful to understand actually why they all look and feel so different. No, it's a great point. And with respect to all of our tariffs and rate structures, when we do these, they're called rate cases. So a big part of my career has been working on rate cases. I've now worked on them in every state in the Northeast, but um, Rhode Island. And that's exactly what we're doing there is setting what's the overall cost to serve our customers in the coming year. So it's that expense plus basically a return on our capital investments. That's what our total rates are that are set. And then we also have a principle that, so you think of that as like we're baking a pie. So that rate case sets what the pie is. And then there's this thing called rate design. And you hear about it a lot in like clean tech world. Everybody wants to talk about rate design, rate design. Rate design is this idea of, okay, you've baked what the total pie is in the rate case. Like what's the total cost to serve customers? Rate design and tariff work is how do we apportion that total cost to different types of customers? So like in some cases, and I would understand and agree that I think demand charges are intellectually one of the toughest or emotionally, intellectually they're understandable, emotionally they're one of the toughest and most unfair, like, come on, man, things in our whole world. But that's what that is of like this principle of how do you, like if we all go out to dinner, who's going to pay and we get one bill, that one bill is what's come out of the rate case, the rate design and tariffs are like who pays for what when we split the bill up. So it ends up being a very interesting issue that gets super wonky and at times very hard to follow. It's so interesting. I know you've always been a like a clean energy advocate, clean energy leader. What should we know and understand about utilities as a rate relates to electrification and incentivizing electrification? Like what are the opportunities for, for the utility? What are their concerns? The question that's always asked, can the grid handle EV? And how should customers and companies go about engaging with utilities when they're trying to electrify? I'll start with one thing that I think is important to understand, and it's going to feel very counterintuitive. And I wouldn't know it if I hadn't worked so deeply in utility finance and rates. But one thing that's really important to remember is that utilities do not make money. We sell more electricity. We don't make any money on that. And I've had so many people that have said to me with strategic electrification, you should be excited because you're going to put in a bunch of heat pumps and you guys, you'll make more, you'll sell more electricity, you'll make more money. That ends up, and there is a side benefit that I'll hit in a second for us, but that ends up not being the case because our rates, except for a couple places down south, all of the utilities in the United States, their rates are, so our, our revenue, so how much electricity we sell is decoupled from our profits. So we have mechanisms in our rates that reconcile if we sell more or less electricity. And the concept there was, from a regulatory standpoint, as efficiency was becoming popular in like the 1970s and 80s, you don't want to give utilities incentives to not encourage people to use less electricity. So that's one important thing. However, I have so much excitement about strategic electrification for clean tech and utilities. And I think that we all have so much more in common than different because it is in utilities' interest to sell a ton more electricity because when we do that, so long as it's for good reasons, like through heat pumps, electric vehicles, et cetera, we actually, our rates are set on the amount of electricity we sell. So we have more units over which to spread our fixed costs because we're selling more. 
So all things being equal, our rates come down, which creates more headroom for other capital investments. So utilities incentives, I would say without exception, are naturally at the highest level, totally aligned with strategic electrification. However, as you click down, like with most things, you start to have disconnects. So one would be the role of the distribution grid in terms of making it updated. So the distribution grid in the United States was designed 100 years ago to be a centralized grid, right, that moved power from like one big nuclear, like a Vermont Yankee or oil-fired or coal plant across the whole utility network. So that's how our current grid by and large is designed. That's now evolving to have a decentralized thing where you know we once had maybe 10 generating resources. We now have 100,000 distributed energy resources through a service territory. There's a lot more complexity about how you manage that. And the utility has the responsibility to manage the grid such that electricity and actual electricity generation, so electricity flowing through it and demand for that electricity are 24-7 perfectly balanced, which is pretty hard. So you have to do a lot of planning and real-time monitoring to make sure it's really easy to mess that up. How big is the team that's making sure that it's balanced all day? It's a very big team. So we call that like a dispatch, generally speaking, like a dispatch center that runs through our operations folks. And that's why if you drive by any big utility office or we call them district centers, you'll see cars out in front like 24-7 because those dispatch centers need to be constantly staffed. And then, of course, if there's a storm or outages or something rolls through, it can become very manic there for them to manage it. So, yeah, it's a big thing. It, it actually drives the material aspect of our costs on the expense side. And the folks that do that work are just super devoted. In many cases, unionized workers that just provide incredible value and just really appreciative of the labor unions and all the people that do that work because it's super important. And it exceeds my understanding. Um, but I just know that it keeps happening and they have very few issues with it, which is pretty amazing. So as you introduce more distributed resources, though, everybody starts to freak out because that is by its nature more complicated. So that would be an area to watch. There is also, for I would say not for Avon Grid, but for some utilities, there is an anxiety around who owns those resources. So like, say you put in a big battery that's not, it's not a generator, it's holding energy and then dispatching it into the grid when you call it, say it's like a hundred megawatt battery. There are some utilities that think because that battery needs to be able to, for rely, if you're gonna use it for reliability, you have to call on it all the time that the utility should own that battery and be able to pick it out and dispatch it and oversee everything. Again, at Avon Grid, we actually don't, we take a broader view of that third-party ownership of resources like that, so long as we have a strong contractual agreement that we can hold the operator responsible and we can test it, we're more comfortable. But that ends up being an issue with many reasonable utilities take issue with that. So that that's another one as you extend. And then the last one I would say is just who pays for all of this. As I said, it's a natural incentive for us to want to make capital investments to support you know, the Northeast states hitting their ZEV mandates. But then there comes the question of that's a lot of investment. So all things being equal, that can cause big increases to rates in each state and customers and politicians don't like that. So who pays for all of this transformation and on, at what speed can also be something. Oh, and then I guess finally, how could I forget? 
interconnection. So we have this process by, that you have to go through when you want to interconnect a distributed resource into our service territory. And I would say that that's, in my view, the single biggest pain point for developers and an area that across the board, every utility needs to continue to work to get better at. It's so complicated. I guess that's why we enjoy being in this industry. If you don't mind going back to the decentralized grid piece, to your point, some areas of the country look at this very differently. Uh, I think you know battery storage is for some utilities it's a it's an opportunity for some it's a challenge actually it's probably it's probably that for everybody it's just how they go about that opportunity and that challenge how do you see um and, and maybe you could speak to either avon grid or the utilities that you've worked with up in the northeast that are, are pretty progressive um, but what, what does the grid look like in 10 years yeah, I think that the, in, in 10 years in the Northeast, you will see the distribution grid substantially upgraded in two ways. One would be getting it ready for continuous dispatch of distributed energy resources. So there's this wonky term DERS that is used. So that could be an electric vehicle charger. It could be a battery. It could be actually solar panels on a rooftop that you call on to dispatch into a battery when there's excess. To do that, in some cases, we need a beefed up grid to be able to handle both increased demand on the system, so people using heat pumps and EV chargers, but also to be able to carry larger amounts of energy across the grid just because it's going back and forth. So you'll see improved substation and transformer capability for the grid. You will also see the grid hardened for increased storms as a result of climate change. You hear this all the time. You hear people say, well, the grid can't handle EV. And I know that's a complex answer, but when you hear that, what's your response? Totally disagree. It is true that as we have more electric vehicles, theoretically the, the load, so meaning the amount of energy that electric vehicle charging pulls off the grid, if you had, three, remind me that you live in Massachusetts? Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm actually, not, I'm in Ipswich, I'm in a local uh, municipality. Oh, I love Ipswich. Yeah, but I'm right next to National Grid. Yeah, so your town in Ipswich, say a bunch of your, three of your neighbors get electric vehicles and they're all charging at the same time, that could theoretically be enough to pop a transformer. So there is work that we need to do to upgrade, but it's all incredibly manageable work. The thing is that it, it does require an increase in rates in the near term to get the, to make those investments. That increase in rates over time will more than be offset to customers by the benefit of all the electricity that is used. I also think make ready programs are incredibly important to drive charging in like the first decade. Um, right now, most of the Northeastern states have robust make ready programs. Maine, which is a fantastic energy regulation state and very impressive commission. Right now, Maine is the laggard on that commission still has not really connected with the philosophy and need for make ready. So it'll be interesting to continue to watch the state of Maine. But otherwise, we need to just continue to fund those programs. And I don't agree when I hear it that the electric vehicle charging will shut down the grid. And I'm not aware of any examples where that's happened anywhere in the continental U.S. So I kind of think that's fear mongering. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you've obviously been a part of a lot of these make programs. How would you define the success of those programs that you've been a part of in the Northeast so far? The make ready programs are, I would describe them conceptually as similar to net energy metering or, you know, net metering where they provide early on incentives to drive adoption. 
What is different from net energy metering and EV make ready and makes EV make ready even a stronger natural incentive between the utility and the EV industry is there's a natural alignment because the utilities indirectly benefit when electricity sales go up is because we don't make any money off that, but it does increase rates for all of our customers and it enables us to make more investments, gives us more headroom. So I, I would submit it's very strong from that. What I have heard in states where it's more advanced is there starts to be an interest in ramping down the classic EV make ready. So level two in a public place and start to focus on other not yet hit areas like medium and heavy duty charging, which in our view is still very much like a new frontier with a lot of investment. But I think that's exactly how it should go. It should be used to spark early investments and then move on to other areas of electric vehicle charging that are needed. How do you quantify as you do these make ready programs? It's obviously to help pencil projects to incent electrification, but as you can spread those kilowatt hours across an entire portfolio, how do you quantify as a utility how you get to the point where the uh, private market can now make these investments with an electrification without some type of a subsidy? Yeah, it's the same. And I would actually submit for EV make ready, there is no subsidy ultimately because in its early years, and I haven't refreshed this calculation in probably about two years, but the last calculation I saw of it, and I, I don't have any reason to think it would change, in its early years, EV make ready, every dollar of EV make ready capital investment that shows up in rates saves customers about a dollar sixty because of the benefit over time of the increased electric sales that will come from those vehicles. So I don't even think it's a subsidy. That said, it is sort of an upfront sharing of savings before they've actually been realized. So it's not like you just want to totally, you know, burn everything down with that. You want to do it in a very careful way to make sure we don't give away too much and, and end up having those assumptions be wrong. But that's what we've seen. Or make rates so heavy for everybody else while you're waiting for those increased electric sales to come in over a decade or in some cases two decades. But I do think we want to watch and see when we're doing something like that, that I would describe as like a special arrangement. Is it really needed to drive the market or could the market happen on its own without that special arrangement? I'm not hearing anybody. In the case of uh, on the solar side of net energy metering, you do hear from some constituents that the same level of upfront special arrangement is no longer needed. Although I think there's arguments on both sides there. I don't ever hear from anybody oh yeah, EV charging is in such a great place. Even I don't even hear this in California when I was working there. We don't need to worry about special arrangements to incent EV charging. Like I think the market is still so early that it's needed, but that, that would be the dynamic you would watch. Got it. Got it. It's so interesting. Maybe I'm a nerd, but I, I just think this stuff is like fascinating. So cutting edge. I do too. That's why we're friends, I think. <laughs> so is there a project that either you're doing or, you're, or Avon Grid is doing right now that you think is important to other regions of the country that they could do? Or is there something that somewhere else in the country is doing that you'd love to see in New York or New England? Well, I would call attention on the renewable side of our business to the Vineyard Wind Project, which is going to be, it is in construction now. We are projecting that its construction will be completed by the end of 2024, and it will be the largest offshore wind project in the United States. So it will provide about enough electricity to power 400,000 homes and businesses in the state of Massachusetts. And it will do so at a cost 
that is generally speaking competitive with if you went out on the spot market right now and bought a, a power entitlement to a gas-fired plant for about three years, it would be generally speaking commensurate with that. And we are expecting that that com cost competitiveness will go up with time as energy costs continue to go up over time. That's uh, an escalated rate under that contract. So I think that's about as exciting as it gets. There's been a lot of difficulties if folks follow offshore wind at all with building these projects with the, the projects were all bid at a time when interest rates were at historic lows, when there was no COVID, no inflation. And then as all of us that are in the offshore wind space have gone to actually build the projects, all of those things, it's supply chain issues, inflation, COVID, interest rates increased, those things all happen. So developing offshore wind is not an easy thing to do. And so when that project and we've really stood by that project and managed it super tightly. We've learned so much and are gaining incredible efficiencies as we build it. And you know, you are basically attaching thousand foot turbines to the seabed off the coast of Massachusetts. So it's a pretty intense thing. That's something I am really excited about and just really proud to be part of an organization that's supporting. And I hope that more of us as utilities and energy companies continue to put our energy into projects like that, especially the scale of that project is, I think, you know, it's very easy to do something at a small scale level. It sounds great. It makes a great press release. But to do it, you're not really putting that much at risk to do it. But to put a level of capital like this at risk and do all of this, I it's something I find very energizing and exciting about. And I am going to go for a boat ride in the spring to go see him. And I would certainly encourage folks to reach out to me at Investor Relations at Avangrid as that project goes into service, because we're going to be looking to facilitate as many people as we can to go out and see it, because we really think it's historic. What does it take to balance the grid when you have an asset like that that's generating that amount of power? Yeah, well, we work with ISO New England. In New England, we work with ISO New England. And they also, sometimes to me, it's like they forecast out like a millennium in or an epic in advance about what supplies are going to do. But that's why they do that really beautifully. So we've worked very closely with them. What's also really interesting about that project and all of the offshore wind projects that they will, there have been some difficulties, but each of our states have very aggressive offshore wind mandates, so there will be a lot more offshore wind projects. They all have undersea transmission networks that transmit. That, I think, is pretty amazing, and that is a real new uncharted territory to build transmission lines undersea that are so vastly complicated. It's not just like the four lines that go to power Martha's Vineyard. Um, it's like it's a whole very intense network moving a ton of electricity back and forth to the mainland. It's pretty interesting. What an incredible, like for me, inconceivable construction project that is. Yeah. It takes it must take a special group to be able to pull that off. <laughs> yeah, it's very counterintuitive. I mean, another one that I would mention at Avangrid that is one that's gotten national attention. And I mention it just because I, I, I think to do things in the clean energy space at scale is really hard. And there's just this cycle where it starts off really good and you get a lot of positive press kudos. And then it starts to get really difficult. And then everybody talks like a lot of trash and says that you shouldn't do it. You don't know what you're doing and it's going to fail. And then you keep going and then it oftentimes can work out. We are building and we actually have started building it again, a high-speed transmission line. So one of those big lines that I talked about, but it's not a utility line. It's what they call a merchant line that's going to move power 
from Hydro-Quebec up in Quebec into Boston, and it runs through the state of, Mass- of state of Maine and then ultimately into Massachusetts. That was a very controversial project. You know, we do need large-scale transmission to renewables at a large scale. So we really want to have a zero-carbon grid. You need huge amounts of renewables, and you need some renewables that are twenty. what we say 24-7, meaning they always show up. They're not impacted if the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow. And so we have been building a transmission project through there. We did have some difficulties in the state of Maine where um, ultimately the Supreme Court of the state of Maine came in and said, no, we do get to build the transmission project. We're continuing to work with folks in Maine to, to make sure and ensure and carry out our commitments that the project will provide value to Maine. That includes a ton of, and you may have worked on them, Chris, a ton of DC fast chargers Yeah, um, that will be um, paid for by the project going through 95. But that's another one that was a really, really, really difficult project with a ton of opposition, including a legal opposition from NextEra Energy Interference in a ballot initiative that actually just yesterday, next year, got sanctioned and, and penalized from the main election committee for ethics violations. So that would be an example of one that's really hard, that sounded really good in the beginning. Everybody's giving you a lot of praise and everybody says that you're crazy and it's not going to happen. And now it's very much the costs have increased to build the project because of all of the opposition and the time delay. But it will happen. And we're also really excited about that. You know, think of Hydro-Quebec as a battery for the rest of New England that we're really using to call on in times when wind and solar are not showing up. So we're excited about that project and the people that have worked on that project are saints and they have worked so hard for such a long time. So also excited about that project. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing this. This is my last question for you. So as it relates to electrification efforts, uh, you know, in my experience, I've kind of always viewed auto manufacturers, policymakers, and utilities as really the, the biggest three players. Like those are the ones that are making the cars, providing the en- energy, and, and creating the rules. And in, in my experience, I've always felt like there was opportunity out there for those three industries to sort of work together to electrify as quickly as possible. So I, I guess th- that's my question is, you know, if, if you had advice for those three uh, industries, what do they need to do together to move forward electrification as quickly as possible? Yeah, I love, I think all ideas have to be reduced down into first principles and you can always simplify something even really complicated. So I love how you did that. I would say, and I'm always want to be curious to learn about the other two constituencies that you described. I would say, and what they need, I would say that we have so much more in common than not. And I would also say, you know, don't worry, the utilities are not looking to, I remember when I was at ChargePoint, there was dialogue about, oh, the utilities are looking to own all of the actual chargers. That is not the case. And I think history has now really shown that. So we want to be supportive and partners in all of it. We, to the extent that we can make capital investments to support it, we want to do that. And beyond that, I would say, you know, keep working it. I think it's very helpful when their policymakers create statutory goals with certain timelines that the utilities and the automakers and the charging industry have to all work together to hit on a state-by-state basis. I think that's when you see some of the best outcomes. So I would encourage policymakers at the state and federal level, put really aggressive, bold targets, put them in a statute and put a date by which they have to happen because that tends to drive the best outcomes from a utility policy auto charging infrastructure because you have to get it done. You don't have a choice. So 
I would say put that in statute, make it a really aggressive goal and put a date certain by which it has to happen. Got it. Got it. And, and you're thinking like some of the Zev state mandates would be a good example of that. They would. They would. Although I'd like to see more teeth in some of those mandates, because my understanding is in many, if not all cases, we're behind on those estates and would like to even see more things to cause anxiety if they don't happen. I do understand that some policymakers would say, well, that's been the auto industry takes a long time to bring vehicles to market and there's just not enough optionality. So I think there can be good reasons. But the more you can cause anxiety around making sure that a really aggressive clean energy target happens or there's going to be a bad consequence to the other participants, that can also be really helpful to drive the action. You know, I, I obviously spend most of my time in Zev states and it's, it's not because there's Zev states, it's because maybe it is because there's Zev states. I certainly live in one. But when I'm in a lot of these states, it's really easy, especially if you have a Tesla, it's really easy to get around. Like the range of anxiety really isn't there. If you have a universal electric vehicle, you know, sometimes obviously it's a little bit more difficult on the universal side, but having worked with so many car dealers across the United States over the past couple of years uh, and, you know, you get to the airport. You rent a car. What do you think I'm going to rent? Uh, obviously, an electric car. And it's interesting. What I found in some of these more rural states is the range anxiety can, in many cases, be real. Where between the airport and the place that I'm going to, an electric yeah. uh, charging station doesn't exist, or it's a level two charging station, and it's just going to be so important. And I think that's where the utilities play their role is making sure that the infrastructure is there so people can feel confident in the experience they're going to have when they go buy the car. Yeah. Um, and then obviously we want we want the cars to be built um, incredibly as well. But it's just it's in, it's so interesting how cyclical and uh, in in how much each one of these major parties affects each other. And in, I think the chicken of the egg argument is relevant when you're talking about all of them. Totally. I also would love to see at the federal level to have DC fast charging infrastructure. I once heard that it would take about 10,000 fast chargers across the US to have them, you know, to have them placed with like 30 to 40 mile distance on all of the major interstates and I don't see how that why the federal government when I think the federal government should step in and do that and provide funding for it as just a basic necessity. I don't see how it's any different than utilities or that, you know, last mile service or phone service or highways. To me, it would be a basic infrastructure investment that needs to happen. Yeah. Well, this was an awesome 50 minutes or so talking to you about all this. Thanks for taking right the back time. There. No, and I just would say feedback for you. The generous, curious spirit that you have is exactly what folks on the clean tech side that are looking to advance objectives with utilities and poly policy makers should have. I What I notice is people that have that type of energy that they bring them in, you know, don't start from a place of contempt, but start from a, I'm curious, tell me about what you need. What does it take to get it done? Those are, in my view, the clean tech folks that move the ball the most for all of us. So I think your energy and spirit and approach to all of this is what we all need to be channeling. So I really appreciate it. Thank you for the kind words right back at you. Yeah, I'm, I'd love to figure out how to have this conversation every every year or so because I think yeah. like every everything you're doing is changing so fast, and there aren't many people that are affecting change more than you. So I, I appreciate you joining, and uh, and until next time, talk to you in 2024. Thanks, Chris. <laughs>